Thank you guys for uh, gathering with us here at Mission Church. It's always a joy to be with you. So um, to kind of set this up, I really want to, to go back and then go forward. Um, the word over the last several months, or over the last month, it has become very apparent as your elders that one, that the word does what it says it does. That the word calls um, us to be convicted. Uh, that the, world, the word causes us and draws us and calls us to be with Christ. That the, the word is pen, it, it penetrates things that will often seem unpenetrable. And we've been seeing this as your elders. And uh, I, I want you to know that I'm torn because I, I deeply grieve some of the things that are going on in the life of our church. And no, I'm not talking about a typical church situation where a bunch of people are upset at the elders or that the elders are actually upset at the church folk. What I'm talking about is the inner turmoil um, that is taking place inside many of the families who are gathered here today and those who aren't. And so in our news, there's been lots of talk about the storms. Think about Hurricane Florence and all of the flooding and all of the, the lives. I think it's something like seven lives that have been lost. And there have been many situations within our lives um, that can almost seem like you and I are drowning in that current situation. I love a good story. I love a good picture. And I've often thought about this in my own life, but also in your life and being one of the elders of your lives, one of the shepherds of your lives. I've, I've been working with you and our other elders have been working with you and you have, the word has just been uncovering a lot of sin, Satan, and death and just hurt and suffering in our lives. And I've pictured this as, as being a person who is on a boat. I love the water. Still to this day, I love the water. I love being on the water. I wish I had a house on the water. I wish I had a boat on the water. I love to be in the water, at the water. I love the lake. I'm thankful to see that Jesus spent much time at the lake and at the ocean. Those are two of my favorite places. But I often imagine being on a boat and being on a boat in the middle of an absolutely uh, just a raging sea. You know, the kind of sea that is often portrayed in movies whenever these huge waves are, are about to be crashing over that vessel and as the people inside the movie or inside of the story are watching as this huge wall of water comes crashing down on this ship. Then the scene cuts to nothing but debris and uh, being inside of the water as this wall of water, as this storm completely disintegrates the vessel. And you often see a person floating in the water and they begin to, to tread water and they're calling out. And they're calling out and they're yelling and they're screaming and they're, they're in pain and they're in sorrow. They're, they're scared, they're terrified, and they're longing for a sense of hope. And yet nothing seems to come. And yet, all of a sudden, a piece of wood from that vessel floats to the surface. And that person who has been treading water, more than food, more than shelter, 
more than water to that person who is now clinging to that floating um, device, to that piece of wood, to that life jacket that floats up to the surface, to that, that barrel full of air, to whatever it is, that when they grab a hold of that, in that moment, that is their most prized possession on the planet. They're thankful for that. They're thankful for that moment. See, in that moment, you still do not see land. But it's in that storm and in that moment where you may not see land, but in that moment when you grab a hold of that wood, when you grab a hold of that barrel, when you grab a hold of that life vest, there is hope. There is something to cling to. Much like Peter, as we see him, if you remember the story where Jesus is walking on the water and Peter is called out to him, and the Bible tells us that he began to see the wind and he was afraid. And he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And that's exactly what Jesus did. This morning, many of you, in many different circumstances, or that person, or that guy, that gal, floating in the midst of that sea. And my prayer is, is that the very physical Word of God would be that piece of wood that is flown to you. That life vest that pops out of nowhere. That barrel that you can grab a hold of. And I get it. I've been in that water. I have been treading. And I understand that you may not see the destination. You may not see land. There may be a lot of distance between you and where you need to get. But right now, in this moment, where you are in your pain and your suffering and your hurt and your craziness of your life, may you cling to the Word this morning. Cling to the Word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, do what only you can do. Lord, save, save us now. Give us a refuge in our greatest time of need. Give us a rock to cling to. Give us some glimpse of hope. Heal our brokenness. Reach your hand out to us, your disobedient servants, one more time. Jesus, help us to cling to you. Help us to trust you and lean not on our own understandings, but in all of our ways acknowledge that you are God. You are the God of our lives. And that you have not left us or forsaken us. Do heart work in this place today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Ephesians 5, we bring together a conclusion to this this mini-series within our greater series on the book of Ephesians, the gospel-centered marriage. And so we're going to look at this, and some of this may be kind of jarring to you, maybe a, a little bit of a tension inside of the room as we look in, into God's Word, and as I, as I prayed and as I've been trying to illustrate, that we would cling to God's Word, that we can trust His Word. When we talk about marriage, we must talk about marriage in, in, in parallel with mission. We must see those things united. 
They're not contradictory of each other, but they are united in one accord. See, for you to be a part of a gospel-centered marriage, you must understand that being a part of that marriage is, is that you are engaging not on your own mission, but you are engaging in the mission of God. That ultimately, the mission of your marriage is to worship Jesus. The mission of your marriage is to worship Jesus. I hope that you have not gotten tired of reading Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, as we've done every time over the last month. But there's in this a very hinge of the gospel that is often overlooked in order for you and I to get some sort of nugget to make our marriage better. We're desperate to see our marriage better, and so we just need some sort of jump start, some sort of five points to make it better because we are so desperate, because we are so lost in it. And yet, I want you to see that as doing that, even as we have done over the last three weeks, I think that there can be beneficial, but if you miss today, then all of the other stuff is useless. The mission of your marriage should be that you worship Jesus. We see this in the very passage. What is the most important, or who is the most important character in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33? It is Jesus. It is the Savior. Go back sometime and circle how many times does Paul use the name Christ or Lord. We see in this passage the importance of Jesus when it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the what? Lord. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the Savior of the church. Church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ sanctifies her. Christ washes her. Christ washes her with the word. Christ presents her as perfect. Christ nourishes her and cherishes the church as his body. Then look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm not saying that it refers to Christ in the church. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The passage on marriage from Genesis, that for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, the, new, the greatest commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And we see in this very passage that Paul gives commentary to the Old Testament passage that was written by Moses thousands and thousands of years ago when he says, yeah, this is true, a man shall leave his father and his mother, but ultimately that that very passage is speaking about Jesus and specifically Jesus and his church. See, if you're a Christian today, you are part of his church. His promises are for you. He is for you. He has not left you if you are in Christ and a part of his church. If you're not in Christ, the promises are not true of you. And yet we see the prominence of Jesus in this passage that is ultimately about him. Paul used the term here, mystery. 
Paul uses the term five times in the book of Ephesians. And what is he talking about? He's not talking about an unsolved mystery here. He's talking about in the New Testament, whenever the term mystery is used, specifically by Paul, specifically in Ephesians, we're seeing that God's hidden purpose is now being revealed. So what God kept veiled for thousands of years, he unveiled in the person and work of Jesus to show these ultimate truths. This is the story of the disciples. The Bible tells us they did not understand many of the things that Jesus said till when? The resurrection. And that's when it began to make sense. So it was a mystery. This mystery is now the revealed or what was once hidden is now completely revealed to God's people. Today, if you're to write down a sermon in a sentence, this is what it would be. And it may be shocking to some of you. A gospel-centered marriage understands it's not about your marriage. See, a gospel-centered marriage understands at its very core that it is not about your marriage. And right now you're sitting here going, what? For the last three weeks you've been pumping into us about our marriages. And that if that is all that you have walked away here from listening to these sermons, then you need to understand greatly that you have missed the point of every single one of them. A gospel-centered marriage understands that their lives as husband, their life as a wife, it is not about your marriage. This is the mystery. This is part of the mystery that Paul is speaking of. Ultimately, a gospel-centered marriage is about Jesus. It is about Him. And the reality is, is that a person will not be able to understand the depths of this mystery and practice these truths in their marriage unless they truly are a Christian. A gospel-centered marriage understands it is not about your marriage. And what is the it? Your life and your marriage are not about your life and your marriage. We'll see this. Isn't it great that in Genesis chapter 3, this is during the fall, as we've talked about over the last several weeks, that we just see the worst thing happen. And in this, God shows up and he, he lays out some discipline for his children and for creation. And we, and we see that on the worst day in this couple's marriage, all right, worst day, worst day in all of the history of humanity, on the very worst day in this couple's life, you know that day where you're, you're thinking about getting those car keys and hopping into the vehicle, or you're just praying that, that he or she would be killed, or that God would, would take you out of this earth, that you are wanting this to be over, you're tired of the yelling, you're tired of the screaming, you're tired of the lack of mobility toward Christ and his likeness, and you are, I'm talking about, anybody had the worst day? day yet so far? You remember that day, right? And I just want you to know, too, if you've never had a bad day in your marriage, it's because you have a bad marriage. Think about that, all right? There is a bad day in your marriage. There is Ebenezer days in your marriage. 
And not only in this marriage, but for all of humanity, on the very worst day in this marriage, on the very worst day for you and I as well, when sin, Satan, and death reigned, when, when death came to humanity and man was separated from an almighty, everlasting God. We cannot draw a chasm wide enough to show where humanity is apart from Jesus. And in the very worst day, as, as Jesus, as God himself, is, is, is dubbing out discipline, what does God do? One, he takes an animal who has done absolutely nothing wrong, and he kills that animal. He skins that animal, and he gives Adam and Eve clothes. But even greater than that illustration is what God says. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In the original Hebrew language here, it's, it's interesting as, as God is laying out some discipline for Eve on this terrible, rotten, no good, awful day. In the midst of that, that God squeezes in and foreshadows and preaches the gospel to this man, woman, and even the serpent in all of creation. As he goes from this, even this plurality of language down to a singular, as he looks at this disobedient woman who he loves, and he says, one day that you are going to have a child. And what is that child going to do? That that child is going to crush the head of a serpent and he will not be without blemish. He will have scars, he will have bruises, but he will crush the head of the serpent. It's what is known as the Proto-Evangelion. It means the, the first proclamation of the gospel isn't found in the New Testament. No, it's found in chapter 3 of Genesis as in all creation as God looks down at his disobedient children and he says, today is terrible, today is awful, today is evil. It is filled with death. It is filled with pain. It is filled with sorrow. It is filled with agony. But don't lose hope. There's one day that's coming. He's going to crush that serpent. He's going to be put on a cross, yes. He's going to be put into a borrowed tomb, yes. But on that third day, he's going to resurrect and let your hope dwell in that and for thousands of years the hope of in the history of Christianity is us always looking forward in, at, at this Jesus at this Messiah the Old Testament was thinking about him coming for the first time and what do we do as a New Testament church we are looking to his second return that's where our hope is in the midst of the worst of days in the most terrible of days he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Marriage is not everything. Singles, you hear that? Married people, do you hear that? Marriage is not everything. Jesus is. Jesus is everything. I love this quote from Dr. Russell Moore came out with a new book like this week. It's so good. I encourage you to read it. 
He says this early on. He says, the worst thing that can happen to you is not your spouse walking out on you or cheating on you or dying. The worst thing can happen to you is dying under the judgment of God, bearing the full weight of the sentence of death and hell. Do you get that? Do you believe that right now in the midst of the hell inside of your home, the brokenness inside of your home, that there's something much worse than them walking out, them cheating on you, or them dying on you. And all of those things, God is not saying that in and of themselves, those things are good. Many of those things can absolutely be gut-wrenching and terrible. And yet there is something much worse than having a terrible marriage. It's missing Jesus. It's missing the gospel. It's being under the weight of the judgment of God. See, my temptation for us as myself, but also as one of your elders, my, my fear, my temptation, my fear is that some of us in this room uh, are, are more in love with finding our spouse or having a perfect marriage than you are missing Jesus. The Bible says, seek first your money, right? The Bible says, seek first your job, right? The Bible says, seek first your spouse, right? No, that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon should all be capitalized. The sermon, the best sermon ever written and preached comes from Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35 through 36, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, brothers and sisters, what a tragedy. What a tragedy it would be this morning for you and I to have great, healthy marriages and spend an eternity in hell. That's the danger. That's the danger. See, for many of us, getting married or being married is an idol. And the temptation is, is to love them or an ideal of them more than we love Jesus. And I'm telling you, God will not, will not, share space with anything or anyone. He is Jesus. He is Lord. He is what it's all about, is that we as believers, ultimately your call is to worship Jesus. And inside of your marriage is for that marriage covenant to worship Jesus. See, a gospel-centered marriage is when two people love Jesus more than they love each other. See, when you love Jesus more than you love your wife, you can get really radical and breathtaking in your expression to them of how much that you love Jesus. Yeah, I'm talking about radical love that, that frees you when you're in Jesus. See, you're, you're free to love them even more. 
See, when you're in Jesus, you're, you're free to forgive them. I'm, I'm talking about the, the crazy kind of fear when they've just walked into you and confessed to you that they have done the most despicable thing, and yet immediately the Holy Spirit comes and fills you in that moment, like Ephesians 5 tells us, and empowers you to immediately to forgive. That takes supernatural work. That's really hard to do, isn't it? And yet it's possible. See, the gospel-centered marriage understands that when they love Jesus more than they love their husband or their wife, they can free them up to serve them even more. It, it frees you up to even grace them even more. The importance of what we're seeing inside the person and work of Jesus is this illustrated. We don't love, forgive, serve, grace our spouse because of what we get from or even because they deserve it. We do these things because it's exactly what Jesus has done to us. It's what Jesus has done to us. So if I claim to know Jesus and yet I don't respond to you in that way, then my beliefs look foolish. There's a major disconnect in your intellectual ascent and your actual practice. See, we've become complacent inside American Christianity that we love to be hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word. And the Scripture is very clear that those two things, there's a disconnect. And if you're a hearer getting fat and obese and gluttonous on the Word of God and yet you don't practice, all it does is really reveal to you how immature that you are or secondly, that you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the Jesus whom you claim to be in relationship with. This is the seriousness of it. This is why a wife, why can she be submissive? It's because, ladies, you're ultimately not being submissive to your husband. You're being submissive as unto the Lord. You're seeing past him to see Jesus. Because that's what Jesus has done to you. The husband is able to lay down his life for his wife no matter what she does no matter how she responds. Why? Because this is exactly what Jesus has done for you. I love uh, Tim and Kathy Keller. They've got a great book, some great things out there that they've written um, on the meaning of marriage. You should read those things. And I love this one line from Kathy as she says, what is awesome about marriage is that the husband and the wife both get to play the Jesus role. They both do. And yet those are completely different roles. But Jesus is true and better submissive at being submissive. And the husband, he's a true and better husband that he continually not only lay down his life once, but eternally lays down his life for his bride. What a beautiful picture. Doesn't that change the weightiness sometimes? Is that, ladies, you get to play the Jesus role. Husbands, you get to play the Jesus role. I say this at every wedding that I preach. The last one I preached was at, at Stephanie and Eric's. I actually read through their wedding before I came here this morning, thinking about they were just recently celebrated their one-year anniversary. And I say this at every one of them because it's so true. You need to understand, brothers and sisters, that marriage is not about your happiness. Marriage is about your holiness. That 
marriage is not about your sanity. Can I get an amen from somebody in here? You want to be insane? Get married. Insane in a membrane? Get married. Sorry, 90s reference. Right? You want to lose your mind? You want to, don't do this out loud, you roll your eyes all you want to inside your brain. Oh, she crazy. Oh, he crazy. I think I'm losing my mind. Get married. Marriage is not about your sanity. Marriage is about your sanctification. See, it has an ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal is not just in what's happening in the day-to-day and the mundane of your house. But God, if you're in Jesus, he is doing something with eternal significance for this point in this person. It's not about getting your needs met by another person, but it's realizing that only God can fulfill your needs. God is going to use marriage to bring you to the end of yourself. Get me, look at me, and he will use every means necessary in it to get you to that point. Every means necessary. Even evil, if you're in Christ, he will use for good to get you to that point. Because he cares more about your end game than today's play. Ultimately, your marriage is not about you. But when I sit down with you, and in my own marriage, have conversations inside my head because I learned not to have them outside my mouth, is that I and you want to use the term I a lot in regards to my marriage. I, 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 or them, 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 them. Ultimately, your marriage, my marriage, is not about you. How do I say this? Because my mama told me not to use bad words. Be quiet. Because the S up word was not allowed in the bakers growing up. Shut up. Be quiet. Because every time you're revealing that you have not come to the end of yourself, that I've not come to the end of myself, ultimately your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about God, and it's about illustrating God's character to each other and also the world. The problem is, is for several years now, too many of us has been focusing on the family. Been focusing on that instead of focusing on Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, by truly pursuing the vertical relationship the horizontal will naturally and supernaturally be changed. I'm not telling you to neglect your marriage, but we do need to understand its place. Its place. We run the race. We fight the good fight. But you need to get this. You will not stand before God on judgment day as a couple. You will stand as an individual. This is a momentary marriage. 
but eternity is forever. And that's where we've got to come to, is that it's ultimately about Jesus. That this passage is about Jesus. That Genesis is about Jesus. Habakkuk, yep, it's in the Bible. Old Testament, check it out. It's in there, I promise. Zephaniah, that one. Guess what? All pointing towards Jesus. That it's all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. All of your money, all of your time, all your talent, all of your marriage, your children, everything that you do in this life, that it better be all about Jesus. Because that's what it really is all about. It's about worshiping him in spirit and in truth, that everything that you do inside of this life, inside of your marriage or outside of this marriage, that it is worshipful, that it is honoring toward Jesus. It is about worshiping Jesus. That is the mission, whether single or married. Worship Jesus. Do not get caught up in the things that don't reflect a worship lifestyle of Jesus. Worship is more than singing some songs. It is a lifestyle of sacrifice and of renewing the mind. The second understanding that we have to have in the mission of marriage is this. It's to make disciples. It's to make disciples. See, Jesus is on a mission field. Jesus is on a mission. Jesus left his father and his mother to cling to his bride, to save his bride. He was submissive to the Father as he went and as he bore the very full wrath of God, as he took upon the sins of the world, the sins of the church, and as he absorbed them in order that you and I would not have to absorb them, that Jesus was willing to bleed out for his bride. He was willing to do whatever it takes. Our God is a missionary, and he's never stopped being a missionary. Mission being a missions isn't something that was created inside of the book of Acts. No, it was something that we saw in the book of Genesis as even God then would come down and walk in the cool of the day with Adam and with Eve. He has always been not a God that we have tried to achieve and to pursue ourselves, but he is a God rather that has always come to us. And in that, and part of that mission and part of that marriage engagement, he tells others this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, you didn't know that was a marriage text. This is the mission is the mission of Jesus, and you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, and you're not engaging in his mission, then what mission are you on? The Bible tells us that narrow is the way that leads to righteousness, but wide is the gate that leads to eternal destruction. What mission are you on? Francis and Lisa Chan wrote in their book, I encourage you to read this as well, said this, so what's commanded? Make disciples. Our life should revolve around these two words, whether it is an individual or as a couple. Our mission is to make as many disciples as we can during our time on earth. This takes priority over everything else. So assume 
assuming you haven't done so already, you should sit down with your spouse tonight and figure out how to structure your lives around the command to make disciples. The command should dictate everything in your life, where you live, where you work, where you spend your money, how you spend your time, everything. You should not make a single decision without the words, make disciples, factoring in. We should constantly be asking ourselves the question, how can we free up more time and resources to make disciples? And this is an additive by Eric. This does not mean sitting down and creating. Man, man, how can we create more time so we can go on more vacations, so we can eat more food, so we can be at home more to make sure that we watch our favorite television shows? How can we free up more time so that we have more free time? Yet that is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible has called you, brothers and sisters, even inside of your marriages to do what? To make disciples. See, God created marriage not as an end. God created marriage as a means to an end. God is illustrating the person and work of Jesus toward his church, his bride, through our marriages in order that the world may hear and see the gospel. The husband joyfully lays down his life for his bride, and it is the wife who becomes her joy to submit to him. Whenever this is seen inside of our lives, then the world itself begins to see this as a witness and begins to wonder, man, what is up with he or she? Man, you got to tell me, how are you guys doing this? I mean, they'll even, they'll even throw sin at you. guys in some sort of open marriage? Is that why you are so happy? No. Man, look at I mean, I want to live such the kind of marriage that if you're in my company with me and my wife, like you're rolling your eyes at your husband. Because you're going, oh, he don't do that. I want to give testimony to that. To, to living my life in such a way that towards Jesus that, that literally it, it is a witness for other people to see that it's, it's attractive, that they're attracted to that sort of thing, that I want to live my life in such a way, my wife wants to live her life in such a way, we want to have a marriage in such a way that our, our daughter knows the difference between a healthy, gospel-centered Jesus as primary type of, uh, of, of marriage and not what she's seeing on TV and from her friends that are in the eighth grade at South Warren High Middle School who are talking about, oh, you're my ride or die. I love you. This is how students really talk in the eighth grade. I punch every eighth grade boy in the face showing up at my house. See, brothers and sisters, your marriage does not stop the mission. It enhances it. In the Great Commission, the, the, the verb is make disciples in the original language. Okay? So the context is, is that as you are going or go therefore has the connotation of just as you're doing normal life, as you're going, you make disciples. So whether you're a teacher, what are you supposed to be doing? Making disciples. If you're retired, what do you do? You make disciples. If you're a business person, if you're resident drug dealers, um, 
what do you do? You make disciples. Flanders, for recording purposes, they're pharmacists. Okay? Game on. All right. So here's the deal. As you were going, one day you decided to get married. As you were going one day, you decided to get married. And getting married isn't an eternal excuse to be disobedient to God. But it is to enhance your relationship with God. See, your marriage, brothers and sisters, is preaching a gospel. The question is whether or not it is a biblical one or a counterfeit one. When we claim to be Christians and have terrible marriages, we are preaching to the world that the gospel is not true. Be a great preacher, a great missionary, a great MC leader. And if it came out that you are a terrible husband or a terrible wife, then everything you have just said for all of those years has completely lost its credibility. Also, think about how this affects your kids. Oh, yeah, we're Christians. I'm trying to, you know, disciple my kids. We talk about Jesus. We got little embroidery on the wall. It says something about God knows the plans he has for your life, which is completely taken out of context by your little Afghanistan thing that your Nana knitted and put up on the wall. All right? Totally taken out of context. I can do all things in Christ who gives me strength. Totally taken out of context. I mean, while you're throwing up, taking out of context passages up on your wall, let's go ahead and put up, do not judge, lest ye be judged. Because that's the most misquoted passage in the Bible. And yet for some issue with inside of us, you, you, we think that we can say that we have this robust faith and that our faith is in Christ and have a terrible marriage and expect a parent, which we'll get to in a few weeks, parent our kids and them not believe, or, and them believe in what you're saying. Because everything you're doing is discrediting what you say you believe in. See, you must understand and view your marriage as an apologetic. You know what apologetics are? Apologetics within Christendom is simply put, I'll give you a simple definition as I can, it's defenses of the Christian faith. This is logic or, or evidence that proves Christianity. It proves the gospel to be true. See, our marriages should be one of the greatest apologetics to a lost and dying world. People should be attracted to the aroma of Christ that our marriage is cast off. That there's something about these people who see they claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and look at their marriages. He is constantly laying down his life for her, and anything that he says within reason that is that is just you know general common courtesy that he asks of her or says we need to go this way or I think we need to go with this way, she does so with a smile as she joyfully submits to this man. That is very attractive to people. It's the aroma of Christ. Our marriages should be one of the greatest apologetics in this lost and dying world. Somebody once told me, and I, and I agree with this statement, that we cannot sacrifice our marriages at the altar of ministry. And that's what a lot of pastors do who fall out of the ministry. 
they will sacrifice their marriages at the altar of ministry. I did this for a long time. For a long time, I was married to the church. I was married to church work only. And I was sleeping with my wife. And there's so much truth wrapped up in that statement. We cannot sacrifice our marriages at the altar of ministry. However, brothers and sisters, there's another side to this. We cannot sacrifice the mission at the altar of marriage either. It is a both and. I'm too busy to make disciples. I'm making disciples inside of our home. Right. We cannot sacrifice the mission either. But we see them enhance. We see them co-siding, just running alongside of each other. They're in need of each other. This means sacrificing time, talents, and treasure in our marriages in order to witness and to teach others the gospel. See, how, how do we open up our homes and schedules and resources for this to happen? This begins in a home, but is, is not limited to the home. See, I'm concerned that we have become very complacent at not making disciples. We've even come up with excuses that that is for some in the church, that that is for paid professionals, for that is for seminary students, for that's for the elders, that's for the pastors, and yet that is not what the Bible says. Do you make disciples inside of your home? Yes, that is debatable. I know your kids, and you know mine. I got one saint, one sinner. Cash is definitely the saint. She's not here, so I can pick on her. We, we, we have to get this, brothers and sisters. That, that making of disciples, I mean, right now, who is here in this room right now because you had gospel influence in their lives? Who are you meeting with this week to pour into? Who are you praying for this week to pour into? Here's the thing. I am not trying to guilt you because you know why? You're guilty. You're guilty. So let's do something about it. Let's repent. Let's become obedient. And some of you goes, well, I just don't know enough. Well, don't tell me some sad story about how you became a Christian at the age of eight when you walked an aisle, and now you're 48, and you still don't know how to make disciples. Well, Paul will talk about that. He said, you should be teaching, but I'm still having to breastfeed you. You need to get off the breast. Okay? Got to quit making these excuses that our marriage hinders our mission because it shouldn't. It should enhance it that we're making disciples, that we're sharing the gospel, that it, that it is all about Jesus, that our lives are about Jesus, that it's not just for some, but no, we're going to be obedient to the word of God, that it is for all. See, a gospel-centered marriage understands that some, through tough decisions, painful decisions that will need to be made in order for us, both male and female, man, wife, husband, wife, all of these things, that we're going to have to make some really tough decisions in our lives in order 
order to enhance the mission for every one of us involved. I'll never forget the time that, uh, or the first time several years ago, and I've heard this story a, a lot since then. It's one of my favorite stories about Todd and Leanne Crosby. Todd had this heart to keep going to, to Africa. He, he came home from Africa. He looked at his wife, and, she, and he says, hey, you know, you knew, you, Leanne, you really need to go to Africa. And Leanne's correct response, and I don't think it was, she's really sweet, so she probably didn't use cuss words, but she was like, I am not going to Africa. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I am not going to Africa. Don't say you're not going to do something, Miss Leanne. And Annette, now she's gone several times. She has a heart for uh, the Burmese population. She is in the process of, of making disciples inside of our church. But I want you to know that mission trips are not cheap. They had to sit down and he had to be encouraged. Hey, Leanne, I want you to go. For us, we're looking at Laura going to Africa next summer. It's like, Laura, I want you to go. I want you to go. What about the money? We'll do whatever it takes. We'll sell a kid if we have to in order for you to go to Africa. Okay? If it's not bolted down to the floor, it can be sold. In order for this to happen, there has to be decisions made. That the, the biggest cheerleader for you and I to engage in this mission of making disciples should be your husband or your wife if you're married. The, the, it should be, go get them, go get them, go get them, go get them. We'll sacrifice time, talent, and treasure in order for you to do that. This week, we have three men from our church getting on a plane, traveling 30 hours to a Muslim country to eat, who knows what, to preach teach and equip, and that's exactly what they should do. But Pastor Eric, they have a wife, they have a kids, they have a home, and they have a job. There's a whole lot of momentary gifts like that, but they're exactly that. They're gifts, not God. Not God. And brothers and sisters, before you just think, I'm not talking simply about making disciples by crossing over a sea. I'm talking about you and I making disciples by crossing the street. In a gospel-centered marriage, the husband and wife are the biggest, again, cheerleaders when it comes to obeying God. Oh, you're having a quiet time? What I've got for you can wait. Would you like some coffee? Oh, you got to go meet with so-and-so at this time, and you may be gone for three hours, and that leaves me here with the kids? I don't know how to take care of kids. Then you shouldn't have had them. Then you shouldn't have had them. You say, baby, you go and make disciples. I got this. You go make disciples. Go be poured into. Go be disciples. I, whatever it takes. Now, again, you can't sacrifice. You can't spend all of your time doing those things because you, you got married. You have a responsibility there. But you also cannot do those things because you got married. This is where it comes together. See, in the gospel-centered marriage, we should be cheerleading. And, and, and their husbands and their wives should be there to say, Go, Daddy, go. Mama, go make disciples, whatever it takes for the gospel. We get two weeks of vacation this year. We're going to spend one at the beach. We're going to spend one in a desert sharing the gospel with unreached people groups. 
And we will do whatever it takes to send, 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 send. See, the largest sending organization in the world should be the church. The micro of that should be your home. Where are you going next, baby cakes or whatever you call them? Where are you going? Who are you pouring into? I'm concerned that you're not making disciples. I'm concerned that you are not older ladies pouring into younger ladies like there is an address for that very statement that I just said. But that we're cheerleading whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. Go. What if you die? You go to heaven. You go to heaven. What are we going to do? God's going to take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all things will be added unto you. What if you die? What if uh, something happens here? What if it does? God is going to use all things to bring you to the end of yourself to realize that at the end of yourself, you find Jesus, who is your all in all. Don't waste your marriage. Don't waste your marriage. We must see our marriage through the lens of eternity, not the now. Marriage in view of eternity will make you weird, radical, and Christ-like. A gospel-minded perspective will, will not allow you to get entangled in civilian pursuits because your aim is Jesus. You're too busy, involved in mission to get mad and angry with each other. Can't get distracted by foolish arguments and, and unforgiveness. We must be quick to handle these issues in our marriage before the sun goes down. Why? Because the mission is at stake. Say this to a man like Adoniram Judson, one of the heroes of my life, who, in asking his wife's father for permission to marry her, pretty much said, Hey, we're going on a mission trip. I want to marry your, your daughter here, and you're never going to see her again, and she's probably going to die over there. And they get on a boat. And they go to the mission field. And his wife dies of a terrible disease. And lo and behold, what is Adoniram Judson? It's good for a man not to burn. So what's he do again? He gets married to some other godly Christian woman. And you know what happens to that godly Christian woman who has five kids by another man? She's a widow. widow. She's a widow, and, and Adoniram takes care of her five kids. They live on the missionary field. She gets a disease and dies. What do you say to people like Suzanne and Charles Spurgeon, who, as Charles is preaching to thousands upon thousands in the Metropolitan the Tabernacle, she has become so ill from giving birth to the, her twin sons that she never recovers for it. She's an invalid. She very rarely ever hears the prince of preachers preach but while she's laying in her bed at home is praying for him she gets so burdened to make disciples that she comes to charles as he's written a, one of my favorite books uh lectures to your students lectures to his students and she said man i wish I, we could get this book into every preacher but there's so many poor preachers in our country that they don't even have the money to buy the resources that they need and what is charles the good pastoring of his wife say to to suzanne he says this what are you going to do about it? What are you willing to give about it to it? Immediately, the story goes that Susanna gets up out of wherever she was. She goes into a bedroom where she had a little stash of money. She came back to Charles and she says, I'll give all of this. It was enough to buy 100 books. 
She gave out those 100 books. There was 200 more pastors that were needing these references. And so she created from her bed something known as the book fund where she raised thousands upon thousands upon thousands of money to create libraries for impoverished pastors so that they could be equipped and resourced to do the work of the ministry. What do you do with a lady named Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband named Jim, and they go and they move to the, these Indians that they're trying to share the gospel with, and they keep dropping things from a plane, like all these gifts and things down to the Indians. They All of a sudden, they decide over some time they're going to now land the plane they interact with this Indian, and, and he, they actually give this Indian a ride. And he goes back to the village, and he lies to the rest of the village, and he tells them that these white men have come and that they're here to kill us. So the next time that Jim and his other buddies land on the beach there in the river, those Indians kill him and all of his friends. And what does Elizabeth Elliot do? She goes home and pouts. Life's over for Elizabeth. She wants nothing to do with this mission. Is that what Elizabeth Elliot does? She goes to the very same men who killed her, and she preaches the gospel. She writes tons of Christian literature now, or did, about Jesus and about missions and about what it's all about. She goes right into the face of the enemy and she preaches the same gospel that her husband died for, preaching to those people. And instead of being unforgiving to them, what does she do? She forgives them and preaches to them because there's eternity at stake. The gospel is at stake. Jesus is at stake. She was not wishing that her enemy would go to hell. No, she was wishing that her enemy would go to heaven. So she preaches to them. Do not tell me that this is not possible because we have plenty of illustrations for that. God has not left us here to worship, but he has left us here to worship him and to make disciples. Your marriage is for the worship of the king and the making of disciples. Again, I agree, discipleship begins in the home, but it does not stay in the home. You are standing on sinking sand to stand before God, and if he was to ask you how dedicated you were to making disciples, and all you have to say is, I, I did it at home. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, I may, says this, I may hear of you, this is Paul thinking about the church at Philippi, he says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Man, what a picture of a marriage, gospel-centered, engaging in the mission of worshiping Jesus and making disciples. I would say the third point would be multiply, but y'all have that down. I've done really well. Side by side. The thing is, is that you get to look over at your husband or your wife and you say, here's the deal, honey. I'm going to pursue Jesus. I'm going to run towards Jesus. I'm going to run towards the cross. Jared, get this. I'm going to run towards Jesus. I'm going to pursue Jesus. I'm going to run my race as hard as I possibly can for Jesus, for his kingdom. I'm going to lay down my life first for that mission. And I hope when I get there, I look and see you there next to me. See, because... 
how difficult is, is it for one of you to be pursuing after Jesus with all of your time, talent, treasure, everything within you, and the other person refuses to do that? But rather, the gospel-centered marriage is one where you take each other by hand. And there are some days when Daddy is good at a good job of keeping gospel for, forward, and he's, he's pointing us toward Jesus, and he's your cheerleader, ladies, and he's saying, come on with me. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. I know it's tough. I know you're treading water. I know that there seems to be no land at, at, that we can see, but let's keep going. And then there are other days when, when she's got him by the hand, and she's like, come on, honey. Quit being passive. Keep pursuing Jesus. Let's think eternally. Let's sacrifice time, talent, treasure, and you go hand in hand into glory dedicated to that mission and God says well done my good and faithful servants and he says I've got a better relationship for you that's your brother and that's your sister go have fun with me forever I hope there's coffee in heaven because I think it's a gift from God finally got my wife on to drinking and I hope and pray one day that Laura and I can sit in glory Sipping really good heaven books. And me say, hey, you remember that time that I looked at stuff on the internet that I shouldn't have been looking at? And you showed me grace? What a picture of Jesus. I'm sorry I did that. You showed me so much grace. And she goes, yeah, because y'all know Laura. Remember that time I used some four-letter words to assassinate your character at the top of my lungs? How foolish was that? But you love me anyway. Isn't God good? Isn't grace good? I'm such a better brother than I was a husband. I'm such a better sister than I was a wife. And sitting around in that coffee shop. For all the people that you had influence on. That in their conversations, they're saying, Look at Eric and Laura. The reasons why we're here is that God used them. Now our lives will be right here. We love Jesus because they showed us how. That's probably not the way it's going to happen. It'll be better. It'll be better. Way better. Brothers and sisters, it's not about your marriage. It's about Jesus. And it's about Jesus and his bride. It's about Jesus and his church. And man, I want you to be a part of that church. Because he's a way better husband. He's a way better pastor. 
he's way more devoted and dedicated in his pursuit of you and making sure that you safely arrive at home than any of us in this room will ever be. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know him? Does your wife know that you know him? Does your husband know that you know him? Do your kids know that you know him? Do your neighbors know that you know him? And your roommates, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, do they know that you know him? Do they know that you are all about worshiping Jesus? Do they know that you are all about making disciples? And your life just oozes all of those things. Let's pray.